It is a great pleasure to welcome to the program Christopher Dickey, a distinguished American journalist whose new book, Securing the City, is about uh, the terrorism problem that this country faces, that the Western world faces, but a special angle of that problem, namely the way in which counterterrorism has been effectively organized in the city most directly targeted, uh, namely New York City, of course, my hometown. Not yours, but you live there part of the time, don't you? I do have an apartment there, and I go back and forth a lot. Between New York and Paris, not a totally uh, impossible well, New, New York, Paris, and the Middle East, yeah. Well, you spent a lot of time in the Middle East on and off in recent years, haven't you? Well, since 1985, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you've met some of the guys out of whom the terror, some of the, the broad community out of whom the terrorists come. Oh, not only the broad community. I mean, I have met people who virtually grew up with bin Laden, um, and not only in Saudi Arabia, but uh, in the field in Afghanistan and Pakistan. What do they have to say about old bin Laden? Uh, well, one of the ones I've talked to the most doesn't like him very much. Oh, never, yes? never did like him very much. Thought he was, uh, thought he was uh, vain and thought that he was focused on, on the wrong issues as far as this guy was concerned. There's always been a sort of a split in uh, those radical jihadist ranks between the ones who were obsessed with Palestine and Israel mm. and others who were obsessed with overthrowing the governments that they of the countries they came from. And bin Laden fit into the latter category. The American city that has been most directly targeted, most directly attacked, and has lost most to the terrorists is, of course, New York City. Uh, 9-11 uh, is a designation of uh, an event which will last for a long time with that very referenti- referentiality. We'll, and we all know what 9-11 means. In Britain, recently now, they start speaking of 4-4. Four, 4-4? Four. Four, four. That's the date of the uh, London... 7-7. Uh, 7-7. I knew it was something. <laughs> yeah, there you, thank you. Yeah, you, my heart stopped for a minute. I thought I missed this completely. No, 7-7. No, seven, seven. I knew it was seven, the seven, same digit twice. 7-7-2005. Seven, yeah. seven, there we go. Uh, on 9-11-2001, you were there, weren't you? In New York, that is. Uh, in New York, yes, I was. I was working on, in my apartment, and I wasn't going to watch TV, but somebody knocked on my door and said you had to look out, and I did. Uh, we have a few sound clips that I want to play tonight, and the first of them is actual coverage of the event. It's the longest clip I've got. It's Katie Couric and Matt Lauer. Before and after the second plane hits, mm. we hear them seeing the second plane hit, mm. and uh, just to evoke our memories of that dreadful day. Let's listen to this, then we'll talk about it directly thereafter. We're back at nine o'clock Eastern time on this Tuesday morning, and we're back with dramatic pictures of an accident that has happened just a short time ago. You're looking at the World Trade Center in lower Manhattan, where just a few minutes ago, we're told that a plane, some reports are that it was a small commuter plane, crashed into the upper floors of one of the twin towers. You can see fire and flames or smoke billowing from that tower. There is a gaping hole on the north side of the building. That's the side you're seeing to the left-hand side of your screen right now and other damage to the west side of that building which is to the right side of your screen this of course happened just before the morning commute before people were heading into their offices and while I'm sure some people were already at work immediately there's speculation or cause for concern this is the World Trade Center that was the center of a terrorist bombing right. some years ago so the questions have to be asked was this purely an accident or could this have been an intentional act but either way extensive damage has been done to 
into this building. It also looks like there's smoke coming out of the east side of the building. That shot we just saw looks like white smoke billowing out the side of the east side of the building. Obviously, horrified commuters were, were absolutely devastated when they heard this explosion. We talked with somebody a moment ago about that, Jennifer Oberstein, and also another eyewitness, Elliot Walker, who is actually a producer here on the Today Show. Elliot, can you hear me? Yes, hi, Katie. Hi, Elliot. Tell me where you are and what you saw. Well, I live in this area. I've returned to my apartment, but I was walking down the sidewalk delivering my young daughter to school, and uh, we heard a very loud um, sound, the kind of sound you hear when a plane is, is uh, you know, going fast past you, followed by an enormous crash um, and an immediate explosion. Um, I don't think we could feel shockwaves, but we, we sort of felt like we did. And we were in a position where we could see um, the Trade Center almost immediately between the other buildings. Um, and an enormous fireball that must have been 300 feet across was visible immediately. Um, a secondary explosion, I think, and then plumes of smoke. There must, be, there must have been a three-block cloud of, of white smoke. Now, from where I was on the street a moment ago, you can, in fact, see smoke leaving the building on three sides. It seems to be coming out on at least four or five floors. Um, the air is filled with hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that are just sort of floating like confetti. Um, the area is swarmed with emergency vehicles um, and sirens. Have you Obviously, seen... we're very sensitive to this kind of thing in this neighborhood. Elliot, have you, of course, because of the incident that occurred in the early 1990s, have you seen any any evidence, Elliot, of, of people being taken out of the building? Uh, you say that emergency vehicles are there, understandably so, but of course the major concern is human oh loss. I mean, do you know if there were many people in the building? Oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit a very large plane just flew directly over my building and there's been another collision can you see it i yes. can see it on the shot oh my something else has you just, know what? We just saw like a plane a circling the building it is in the other building we just saw a plane circling the building a second ago on the shot right before I that think there may have been another impact can you tell i just heard another very loud bang and a very large plane that might have been a DC-9 or a 747 just flew past my window, and I think it may have hit the Trade Center right. again. To be, to be honest, Elliot, I didn't, I didn't get the impression that it was that big a plane. It looked I, big from here. I did see a plane go by a second ago, though, and it, it, it has now impacted the building. I'm yeah. trying to see if it's the different tower. Yeah. I think it's it may have been. I believe the first one was World Trade Center 1, and it looks, from what I'm seeing on the television, like it may have been We're the second see, building. This is a piece of tape. And we may actually see another plane enter the picture here in a second. I wonder if there are air traffic control problems. Let's go back to Jennifer Oberstein, who was talking to a second ago. Jennifer, did you see this happen? Hello? Did Jennifer? you just see this happen, Jennifer? Matt, I, I've, I've never seen any, it looks like a movie. I saw a large plane, like a jet, going immediately headed directly into the World Trade Center. It, it, it just flew into it, into the, into the other tower coming from south to north. I watched the plane fly into the World Trade Center. It was a jet, it was a very large plane. It was going south, it went past the Ritz-Carlton Hill and Battery Park. It went flew right past it, almost hit it, and then went in. This is so shocking, of course, to everybody watching. I, I've never seen anything like it. It literally blew itself into World Trade Center. Obviously, now we, we move from what, what appears to have... There it is right there. 
Again, I'm looking from south to north, that, and it went into the, the one on the right. That appeared to be at least a 727. We saw it a second ago. Here, it, here comes the videotape that we, we just showed you. You will see what appears to be a large plane. It could be a 727 right there, maybe even bigger, flying right into the side of the World Trade Center. Well, that does bring it back. I must say the sang froid uh, that Katie Couric manages when she says, this is really rather shocking. <laughs> it's a little who bit knew, out of... Who knew what to say? I mean, I, I, I immediately went out uh, and, and walked across Central Park to my office at uh, yeah. Newsweek. And I remember as I was crossing Central Park, there was a jogger out there with a FM radio earphones on, a woman mm -hmm. jogger. And as she passed me, she looked at me and she says, how about those terrorists, huh? How about those Yankees? <laughs> yeah, it was just the most bizarre experience. Oh. Uh, and of course, even from even from that height, that far uptown, you could look down and see this enormous thunderhead of of flame and smoke. We are about to pause for some commercials. Um, when we come back, the question, of course, that still haunts us um, all these all these years after that 9/11, 2001, is will it happen again? Are they trying to make it happen again? It's clear that the New York City Police Department uh, lives with worst-case analysis and uh, has put a vast amount of manpower, woman power, and a vast amount of talent into counterterrorism, which may have prevented something like this having a repeat uh, performance in New York. But uh, one wonders whether repeat performances are being planned and plotted and whether counter-terrorist activity is sufficient to finally fully block that from ever happening again, whether in New York or, for that matter, in Chicago. We know, you told me before the program, that uh, one of the targets that uh, has sort of iconic status for these terrorists and that they often talk about and visualize destroying is our own Sears Tower. Oh, absolutely. When we return, let's consider just where we stand with regard to all of, to all of this and how effective counterterrorism is and how big the uh, persisting terrorist threat actually is. In conversation with Christopher Dickey, uh, author of the new book, Securing the City, Inside America's Best Counterterrorism Force, uh, the New York Police Department. Uh, on with the conversation after this. And our guest, Christopher Dickey, a well-established and major figure in American journalism, has been writing from around the world for the uh, for Newsweek magazine for many years, a uh, long time uh, spent in the Middle East, based in Cairo, and poking around all of those trouble spots. And I guess it's that sort of background that led you to say to yourself, as soon as the second plane hit, you said what? It's got to be Bin Laden. It's you know that. be Bin Laden. Why did you? Sure. Because, how did you know that? Well, because I'd been covering him since about 1993, or him sort of the proto al qaeda organization and then focusing in on him much mm -hmm. more in the mid 1990s and i knew the kind of things that he liked to do i i had gone the day of the bombings of the u.s embassies in nairobi and uh, dar es salaam i went straight to nairobi and uh, and was there on the scene and and was looking at the way he thought and talking to people who knew him and to some extent worked with him. There was, a, there was a time when you could go to London and talk to people who were not only his supporters but his facilitators. They were all holed up in what's known as Londonistan. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the late 1990s... That's I, Melanie I, Phillips' term, I think. <laughs> well, a lot of people use it. Yeah. A lot of people use it. Uh, and in those days, you could go and you could talk to his associates uh, you know, in London. 
Well, were they declared terrorists at the time, trying to blow up the Western world? Uh, they all had stories about how they weren't really terrorists, but in fact, the British knew per perfectly well that they were hooked up with bin Laden, and they knew what kinds of activities he was he was pursuing. Of course, before 9-11, those activities seemed to be limited to blowing up American warships and American embassies <laughs> and trying to overthrow the governments of Egypt and uh, Algeria and Saudi Arabia. I do want to come very quickly to uh, the content of your very interesting new book, Securing the City. But before we do, and staying with bin Laden and with uh, jihadist or Islamist terrorism, uh, what's your best construal and uh, understanding of what motivates them, of where it came from and why it's there. Well, I, I think that when you're looking at, it's a mistake to look at it too much in terms of a vast organization. Uh, I think that most terrorist activities that we so, uh, associate with jihadists, uh, especially in the West, have been carried out by small groups of guys. Uh, I don't know if it's a leaderless jihad, as uh, Mark Sageman wrote in his book, but it is a jihad where you've got small groups of guys who are driven by anger, a lot of it self-generated, a lot of it coming from the Internet, uh, and also by testosterone and a need for spectacle and ego. All of that works together. What but I don't think we've got is a big clash of civilizations going on here. Nor, I gather, do you think that we've got a, a terrorist organization where all the lines lead back to Al-Qaeda central, someplace no. in Waziristan. No, no, and it was never thus. If you, I think the best analogy for what uh, bin Laden set up was the incubators of the Internet era and of the dot-com era. He had money, he had resources, he pulled together people who had ideas and helped them execute those ideas. In, in the case in point being Mohammed Atta and the team from Hamburg that carried out the 9-11 uh, atrocities. Yeah. Well, wasn't that dreamed up by... Bin Laden, or was the plan submitted to him? It was submitted for to full him. approval. It was submitted to him. In fact, approval. we now have in prison, under close close control, the man who supposedly designed the whole operation. Yeah, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, was the was the genius behind it, uh, but uh, Mohammed Atta was also um, mm -hmm. an instrumental part of it and the key organizer of it. In fact, one of the things we discovered is that without a Mohammed Atta, the terrorists had very very uh, big problems trying to execute their their nightmarish dreams. A related question which leads us directly to your book is why would how does one account for the great intelligence failure uh, so that this 9/11 plot got through? Basically the problem was competition and misunderstandings among the American intelligence organizations, CIA and CIA, NSA and FBI. Yeah. Uh, all were concerned the three with the, letter groups, as you call them. The, yeah, the three letter guys is what the cops call them. Yeah, and the uh, and they all were they all had competing interests and competing concerns. So you could have the NSA picking up communications out of Yemen that were pointing to guys who were going to Malaysia. The Malay the CIA would work a deal to watch the guys in Malaysia, but then those guys wind up in San Diego, and somehow they're never put on any watch lists. So now we come to New York City. Uh, and uh, the Giuliani mayor's mayoralty is ending, and Bloomberg is coming in, and they've got a big question and a big problem on their hands. How do they con how do they define the problem? Well, up until 9/11, even Ray Kelly, who had been the police commissioner in the early 90s, said he believed that basically the FBI and the CIA would protect America and protect New mm -hmm. York City. Now they look into a situation where they know that that's not true. 
that somebody failed. And they want to make sure that when it comes to protecting New York City, they know everything they can from every source. Now, are they going also on the assumption if they've done it to us once, they're going to try to do it again? They are going on the assumption, as, uh, as David Cohen, who would become the head of the intelligence organization of the NYPD, said, that somebody out there is plotting every day of every week to attack New York City. Does he still make that assertion? He absolutely does. He believes that that's the guiding principle of the intelligence division of the mm -hmm. NYPD and of the NYPD as a whole. Uh, it's The public, I don't think, feels that way anymore, but the cops yeah. do. Yeah. The cops do. Uh, on on the, the date, 9-11, New York had a counterintelligence squad numbering about 25 cops. No. On 9-11, on there were 600 cops in the intelligence division, but none of them were assigned to counterterrorism at all. That's what I mean. And the ones who were working with the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which was from a different division of the yeah. cops, there were 17 of them. When Kelly came in, he took that number and he jumped it up to 130 overnight because he wanted the power, the bureaucratic power within the Joint Terrorism Task Force to get the information he needed. But at the same time, he brought in the former head of operations for the CIA, that that's is this, clandestine operations. That's this fellow David Cohen. And that was David Cohen. And he said to Cohen, basically, you know, David, you're going to have a chance to make your own intelligence organization here. Our purpose with it is to stop terrorism hitting New York City. You do what you need to do. And that's what Cohen set out to do. It is your judgment, uh, and it's based upon a great deal of material, which you present quite vividly uh, as you tell the many, many stories uh, in securing the city. It is your judgment overall that they're doing a better job in a way than the CIA has ever done in this kind of function, namely counterterrorism. Yes, in this kind of intelligence gathering function, they've, they've really excelled for a couple of basic reasons. The, the most important thing they did was to make the diversity of New York City and the diversity of the police force work for them. I don't know if you remember back in 2002, there was a huge crisis. Everybody said CIA doesn't seem to have anybody who mm -hmm. can speak Arabic. Of course, it had few people. The FBI had a few people, but very few people. And a few, de a few college deans looking for quick publicity announced they were establishing Arabic studies programs. Right, but at, in 2002, all of the universities and colleges in the United States produced six graduates in the Arabic language. Yeah. So there was this huge dearth of, of not only of linguists, but especially of trained officers, agents, and operatives. But I'm a native Brooklyn boy, and I know that in an area of Brooklyn, not where I was raised, but not too far from where I was raised, you've got essentially uh, um, a, uh, an Arab town. Uh, the nationalities represented are variable. A lot of Syrians. Uh, a lot of uh, Yemenis. A lot of Yemeni and... Uh, uh, a lot of everybody. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, 40% of the population of New York City was not born in the United States mm -hmm. of America. And a lot of the recent immigrants have come from South Asia, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, and also from the Arab world, Yemenis, Syrians, and others. Another great uh, population center for them is Dearborn, Michigan. It is. It is. But Dearborn is a slightly different dynamic. And we could get into that. But the, one of the interesting things that Cohen had been involved in when he, when he was with the CIA in the late 1980s, he was, he was, he was of CIA operations inside the United States. And one of the functions of the CIA was to recruit agents of access that would give, lead them into those communities. And we'll talk more about the way in which they set up this major operation, this major institution, which still is very much on the job 
to the present moment, I'm sure, as we continue in conversation with Christopher Dickey right after an update on the news from Jim Goodis. And directly back to Christopher Dickey, drawing from his new book, Securing the City, Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD, the New York Police Department. So they had a great resource there, which they knew right after 9-11, a resource in foreign-born wearers of the uniform or foreign-born detectives. Cops walking the beat who already spoke... Pashto because they actually were born in Afghanistan or spoke Dari or Bengali or and certainly Arabic lots of Arabic speakers who were already cops so what they did was test them to find out just how fluent they were uh, and then start to use them in interesting ways as undercover officers or put them looking at the web in chat rooms al-Qaeda chat rooms but in the CIA or the FBI you say that such guys would never have been commissioned at all not to be not to be agents and not to be operatives. No, uh, very very rarely because they can't get the security clearances. Yeah. Uh, the security clearance uh, system goes back to the Cold War, when you're constantly worried about the KGB running agents in on you, uh, and as a result, the the they want to check you you know back basically to your kindergarten teachers. Well, you know what? If you were born in Karachi, nobody's going to be able to find your kindergarten teacher to to question them. But the NYPD uses lie detector, uh, you know, lie detectors and uh, and other means to satisfy itself that these people are loyal. And in fact, they have all, almost all, I think, as far as I know, all proved to be loyal. Did they as well begin to recruit yet other foreign? Absolutely, absolutely. They put a big emphasis on it. And now, in every graduating class for now several years of the uh, New York Police Academy, there have been about 50 different nationalities. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm a young guy named Sadek al-Azam, uh, <laughs> born in Damascus, yeah. uh, and a fluent Arabic speaker, and I'm a cop on the beach in New York. What do they do me? What What do they do with me? What does Cohen assign me to uh, a few months after 9/11? Well, it depends on what he's interested in. Let's take a Let's take a concrete case. All right. You're a young guy in the police academy who was born in Bangladesh. Uh, you speak fluent Bengali. You're a, a pious Muslim. Uh, and Cohen spots you, he takes you out of the police academy, he says, I'm going to send you to Bay Ridge, we're going to get you a little apartment there, you're never going to go near the precinct house, you're going to communicate with one of the guys I've got in the intelligence division by email, and when we see something interesting in Bay Ridge, you're going to go get to know those guys. I've got to ask you where in Bay Ridge exactly. (laughs) I can't tell you exactly. It's my home neighborhood. Uh, Well, I thought it might be when you were talking (laughs) about the Arab community, absolutely. Go on. So there was a mosque in Bay Ridge, uh, yeah. with a, there are a few mosques, but there was one in particular with a bookstore uh, where there were a couple of guys hanging out and always talking about jihad and their anger against the United States. Somebody called uh, and complained, somebody from the Muslim community, we presume. And so the next thing you know, this ba- Bangladeshi kid is showing up at the bookstore and just listening to all the things these guys are saying, maybe sharing with them some of his own ideas not sharing with him the fact that he's an undercover cop. Is he reporting back on a regular basis? Absolutely. Voluminously. So he's a, he's a spy. Of course he is. Yeah. We're talking about the intelligence division. Yeah, to be sure. That's what they do. Um, and that's one of the ways in which they were used. Another way they're used is uh, in the intelligence division. They spend a lot of time in, in Al-Qaeda-related chat, chat rooms, jihadist chat rooms on the web, where there are a lot of filters run by the people who run those chat rooms. So they'll say typically, uh, you know, that mosque, they'll refer to the mosque that burned down in such and such a neighborhood. And if you come from that neighborhood, which is the case, uh, 
then you can say, well, that mosque didn't burn down. My sister lives next to that mosque. It's still there. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And then you get to the next level of the chat room where you get deeper and deeper into the area where people are really talking about what they want to do. I often see mentions of these chat rooms, but how do you get to them? If I wanted to bring up a chat room on my screen, could I do it? Well, you could probably get to the initial portals. And then I'd flunk the test, of and course. And then you would flunk the test. In fact, you wouldn't be able to read it unless you read Arabic. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, if you get through the portals and you reach uh, uh, then, the active portion of the chat room, what do you then find? Well, then you find the kind of chatter that I think everybody's trying to monitor all the time. And it's one thing to sit back and watch it. It's another thing in intelligence to be able to participate in it. And that's the advantage of these guys in the NYPD. They can go in and not just listen to random characters or watch the messages from random characters saying we ought to blow up the Sears Tower. They can get in there and say, well, how are we going to do that? I, you know, I haven't been to Chicago yet, but if I go, what should I be looking for? Can you, on the basis of the intelligence turned up by these secret agents of the New York Police Department, can you come to some sort of quantitative or quasi-quantitative estimate of how much disloyalty there is out there in those communities? I think there's a lot of anger uh, about certain issues. There's a lot of anger about Iraq. Uh, there was a lot, and there's always a lot of anger when there is a campaign in, uh, in Israel or in the Palestinian territories like the one in Gaza recently. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, does that anger move from vocal anger to calls for action and violence, especially against the United States or against the Jewish community in New York, which is, New York has, I think, the second largest Jewish population of any city in the world after Tel Aviv. So uh, that's what they're looking for, is the question of moving from anger to action. And there's not a lot of that. That tends to be associated with what they refer to as groups of guys people who may be going to the mosque, they know each other, they may have played on the same soccer team, uh, but they start building their own anger among themselves, fueling it, feeding it with images off the internet, DVDs, books, diatribes. Um, and one of the things that they look for in the NYPD is not the moment guys start going to a mosque, but the moment they pull out of it because they don't want to listen to the mainstream discourse anymore, because they are in touch with the truth. Their anger is their driving force, and they don't want anybody telling them that they should calm down. Those are the guys who become dangerous and potentially the kinds of people that well, would blow themselves up on the subway, subways of London or perhaps New York. And apparently, uh, indeed, it's clear from some of the cases you review that when you spot such clusters or groups, uh, you may and essentially do a sting operation on them, and uh, the police agent, uh, in fact, tries to get them to organize an activity so they can be arrested. Well, they do that. They do that sometimes. But the truth is they've done that, I think, in at least one case, uh, uh, where a couple of guys were plotting to blow up the Herald Square subway station. <laughs> and I think that was done as an example by the police. I think the police wanted to send a message to other groups of uh -huh. guys that if there are two of you plotting, or if there are three of you plotting, one of them may be an undercover agent. One of them may be a police informer. And I think that was very much why that case was so publicized, because the intelligence division actually doesn't book people very often. It doesn't bring cases very often at all. This is one of the key differences with the FBI. It's The focus of the NYPD is all on prevention, not on prosecution. 
I am reminded of a classic New Yorker cartoon, which goes back to Cold War days and doesn't have anything to do with Islamist uh, terrorists. It's a, a meeting of a cell of the Communist Party. Some disreputable guys, one or two in beards, down in sort of a cellar space. And the man who's addressing the group says, uh, comrades and secret agents of the FBI. <laughs> well, that's exactly. The, that, uh, that's, that, that is exactly the, the kind of, of mistrust, distrust and dissension that the NYPD wants to sow in, in among groups that may be plotting terrorist activities. And they'll do other things that, that only cops could do, the FBI couldn't do. Uh, for instance, if they spot uh, a cluster, a group of guys that mm -hmm. they think is suspect, uh, they may follow one of those guys onto the subway and send a white shield, a uniformed cop up to him and say, you know, you're sitting on two seats here at the same time. That's illegal in, in the city of New York. I'm going to have to take you down to the station. And then they take the guy down to the station and they say, we know a fair amount about you. What would your friends say if they knew you were down here talking to us? How do you think they'd feel about that? And so you start to recruit the guy. That's a turning operation, isn't it? That's a turning operation and an uh -huh. intimidation operation. If the guy's a young, naive guy who was just toying around with this idea, he's probably going to give it up. If he's more hardcore, he really will start to think about how much his organization has been penetrated already. Mm -hmm. Or will he become, and would you trust him if he did become, an agent of the police? Well, they certainly hope he'll become an agent of the police. And will they trust him? How much do you ever trust your agents? You have to work with them. You have to watch them. And you have to see what kinds of results they bring you. So it's rather like the CIA recruiting uh, agents in place from other countries. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and it's a little bit like what Cohen was doing when he was running the domestic yeah. operations. Uh -huh. you, you find, because look, if you want to find out we were talking about the Yemeni community in New York City. Mm -hmm. If you want to find out what's going on in Yemen, you can probably find out a hell of a lot more in Bay Ridge these days than you can find out on the streets of Aden or Sana'a. Hmm. Why? Because there are a lot, several different reasons. One is that everybody in, in Bay Ridge is related to people, and they stay in close touch, and they follow, follow what's going on in their home country. The other, another reason is that they feel freer to talk in the United States than they do in their own countries. Basic question. Uh, I put it before you just before we pause for some commercials, and then we can get to it, obviously. It's simply this. What do we know about actual dangerous plots that they have spotted and they have uh, cut off before execution in New York City, or for that matter, elsewhere in the country. Well, the time uh, for after the commercial, ah. uh, that's known as a as a teaser mm -hmm. uh, or as a hook. We'll be directly back to uh, uh, to Christopher Dickey responding to that question, telling us about some of the plots that have been uh, nipped in the bud, so to speak. Right after we pause for this, we are back on the air. The trouble with a re when you have a really interesting guest with a lot to say is that during the interstitial periods while the commercials are on, we <laughs> go on talking and then I forget to come back on the air at the proper moment. You were about to tell you were telling me a story. Let's come directly to it after I just quickly renew the guiding question, which is, uh, what are some of the plots that they have foiled? Well. I think the most important ones were right after 9-11, the effort by Khalid Sheikh Mohammed when he was still free before he was captured by the CIA in 2003 to mount a second wave of attacks against the United States. What was that second wave supposed to uh, come Well, it, it included Chicago as one of the possible targets. 
uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had designed a second wave before the first wave was carried out. Mm -hmm. First wave was all carried out by Arabs. He was going to have a second wave that was going to be carried out by people who were not at all Arab. Maybe they were South Asian, maybe they were Canadians. Uh, we know that some of the people who were going to be involved with it, but it just kept falling apart. He what were they intending to go after? They were, they were going to go, the first idea was that the East Coast would be difficult, so you would go against Chicago and or uh, targets on the West Coast uh, with airplanes. Again, they were going to hijack airplanes. The thing to remember here is that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed destroyed better than he knew. He didn't expect those towers to come down. They didn't expect they would kill 3,000 people, and they didn't expect, therefore, the level of reaction that they faced in the United uh -huh. States. They thought there would be heightened security. There might be an attack on Afghanistan. They didn't expect the draconian... But they were, gonna, they were planning in Chicago to run a plane into the Sears Tower. That was one of the things that they were talking about. They, were look, they also were looking at Seattle as a target. But they were basically looking at anywhere that was not the East Coast in the first first thinking about what it. were they I know the, the town of Seattle as a matter of fact I've got family there what were they targeting in Seattle uh, the way he described it uh, eventually when he was interrogated was a bank building but there's no such bank as the one that he described so they, they figure it was one of the major bank buildings uh -huh. Uh, in in Seattle, not not the not the needle for some reason. That uh -huh. was guess not enough people in it. It's pretty thin target. Yeah, actually, yeah. But uh, but anyway, he he also was planning to blow up the Brooklyn Bridge if he could or destroy it. He had this idea. He trained had some training as an engineer in the United States in North Carolina, as a matter of fact. Uh, and he had this idea that because it's a suspension bridge, if you could cut the right cables with the acetylene torches or through other means, uh, you could bring it down. And these guys were always very Hollywood-oriented, so they referred to the Brooklyn Bridge as the bridge in the Godzilla movie. Yes. Well, nobody's seen that movie, actually, in the United States because it was such a terrible flop with Matthew Broderick, but they loved it in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, uh, and that, that was the way they talked about hitting the Brooklyn Bridge. But none of that, none of that panned out. And why, why not? Well, the Brooklyn Bridge plot is particularly interesting because... There you had a guy named Ayman Faris who worked with bin Laden, who was casing it, who was looking at it. He was a truck driver here in the United States. And uh, one of the things the NYPD does is have these surges of force uh, at random locations around Manhattan that might be terrorist targets. Just to tell anybody who is looking at them, we're here. We can show up in all kinds of ways, in very unexpected moments. And that's exactly what happened in late 2002, early 2003. And Iman Farris kept casing the Brooklyn Bridge and kept seeing cops all over the place. And he finally sent a note back to Karachi to his handler in Pakistan and said, "It's the weather here is too hot. We can't do it." Well, was this. it just a happy uh, co uh, concatenation of forces, so to speak, or did they have intelligence saying in this that case the they did not? In this, they 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 knew the Brooklyn Bridge was on the target list for al-Qaeda because by then they had also captured, the CIA had captured a man named Abu Zubaydah, uh -huh. uh, who was uh, one of the first person that they waterboarded, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, a lot of his testimony was incoherent, but he kept talking about the bridge in the Godzilla movie. And eventually, in this case, the FBI agents uh, who were interrogating him, went out and I don't know if they went to Netflix or their local video looked store at the Godzilla movie. and looked at the Godzilla movie. They ah, oh, the Brooklyn Bridge. That's what they're talking about. Uh -huh. So after 9-11, uh, they surely wanted to hit New York again. 
sure. They wanted to hit New York again at, well, the Brooklyn Bridge. They did, they, yeah. but they, were, they had a variety of targets, but everything kept falling through. Another one of their plots, not directly uh, related to New York, but was to blow up airliners using shoe bombs. They had two okay. guys uh, that they had equipped to do that. One would have been that Richard Reed. Story. And one was Richard Reed, uh, who was Reed, really, yes. Reed, who was really very stupid, uh, very thick guy. And clearly, he was such an idiot that he didn't even bring matches that would light the fuse of his shoes. You could borrow a match from the guy sitting yeah. <laughs> But the, but I mean, we laugh now, but it would have been really a horrific event if yeah. that plane had gone down. And in fact, there were supposed to be two bombers. The other one, uh, a guy named Sajid Badat. Uh, was smart enough to pull out of the plot before it happened, but not so smart that he didn't leave those shoes in his closet where they were eventually found by d investigators when they were clued into his name. So you have these kinds. Of, another guy named Majid Khan that they tried to use uh, was supposed to be uh, helping them plot to blow up uh, gas stations and make big booms uh, that way. Now, what about the... The greater anxiety, the anxiety that they may be able to get their hands on the material that would enable at least the production of a radiation weapon or even a full uh, nuclear weapon on the model of the old atom bomb, if not the, uh, the later more sophisticated hydrogen bomb. Or using anthrax or some other thing might do a biological assault. Or uh, the other possibility is a direct chemical assault. Uh, we've We've been told again and again that those are ways that those would be weapons of mass destruction. Plant them in the middle of a city, and you could essentially invalidate the city and destroy half of the population. It's a horrible scenario, and it's one that the NYPD focuses on very much. They think about it all the time. So does the federal government. Well, they, they just think about it, or what? No, no, no. The, they wait, wait, no, they have a lot of a, a lot of high-tech gear that's supposed to help them find out uh -huh. if they're doing it. It 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 might work. <laughs> Or it might not. There's a lot of false positives with any of that gear. For instance, the stuff that sh that's most easy to detect is radiological or nuclear mm -hmm. devices. Unfortunately, the gear that that detects that also shows a positive sign if it gets near anybody who's had uh, any kind of radiation therapy. Uh -huh. Uh, so, for instance, a couple of years ago on New Year's Eve, one poor woman from India who'd come to New York for medical treatment was stopped seven times because the all the cops in in Times Square on New Year's Eve have radiation pagers, they call them, little Geiger counters mm -hmm. on their belts, and they just, they kept going off. They're probably on their alert on New Year's Eve as well. Oh, absolutely they are. But the, I think there's something important to remember about these uh, weapons of mass destruction scenarios. We we can't confuse the intentions of terrorists with their abilities. And the truth is, no terrorist organization of any stripe, Muslim or otherwise, has ever come close to carrying out what you might call a successful uh, attack with weapons of mass destruction, including the Aung Shinrikyo cult uh, in Japan, which had sarin nerve gas, a very potent nerve gas, and had been protected by religious laws and had a billion dollars with which to develop this stuff. And they, when they finally set it off at the subways of Tokyo, they killed about 10 people, and yeah. they could have killed that many people with a shotgun. We shall continue in conversation along these lines. Something that bedevils me is that so many intelligence people, every so often, maybe on the way out of office or maybe other, at other times, say inevitably there will be another major assault, and it will be worse than... 9-11 in New York. It could be nuclear, it could be chemical, it could be biological, but it's going to happen, they say. I want to put that to you directly after 
we pause again for the news, and we go directly back to conversation with Christopher Dickey, drawing from his new book, Securing the City, Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD, of which book an old friend of ours, Michael Corta, says, Christopher Dickey has written a work of meticulous reporting that reads like a John le Carre novel, illuminating the shadowy world of terrorists and that of the New York City cops who hunt them down. A terrifying and yet reassuring read. That's rather the reaction I had <laughs> as I've been reading this book yeah. uh, for the last few days. I do want to give you a little quick soundbite. It runs only 15 seconds. Uh, here are people being killed. That is an actual on-site recording, so to speak, of the bombings in uh, in Madrid. Yes, that's right, ago. in Madrid. It's from the security camera. Yeah. Uh, it's, and if you were able to see it, it's even more dramatic. The, sure. All of a sudden, it's just flashes of light. Everything disappears, then new flashes of light. How many were killed in that undertaking? Oh, I forget the exact number. Two hundred, I believe. Uh, it was, uh, I think, oh, 190, as they were yeah. told. And that's small stuff compared to what we're told may happen in the near future or in the mid-range yes, but future. It's, but it's the most likely kind of terror to affect an American city, particularly New York City. The concerns, for instance, Dick Cheney recently talked about the threat of, even an increased threat of weapons of mass destruction mm -hmm. being used in a terrorist incident. Now that Obama is president, I'm not sure what the connection is exactly. But the fact is these, these Weapons of mass destruction, while you have to guard against them, you have to be concerned about them, the much greater likely, likelihood, because it's so low-tech, is that a group of people working with al-Qaeda or inspired by al-Qaeda or inspired by other issues yeah. will carry out an attack uh, on a mass transit system, like that one in Madrid, like the one in London, like not the recent events in Mumbai, but in 2006 in Mumbai. All right, but take this other scenario. What's the, what would prevent... Uh, they're enacting this scenario, which we've heard so often. You bring in uh, in suitcases or in... Uh, well, first of all, you have to have the device. You have to you make You bring it. in the elements that you can put together to make a radioactive... Uh, a radiological bomb. A radiological bomb, and you ignite it, you set it off in Times Square, ultimately. Sure, and this is a huge concern. Uh, or that's at one, City Hall in Chicago. Well, that's one of the... But to do that, basically, you would you would have to get first of all, you have to get the radio radioactive material. It's not as hard as it sounds. Uh, cesium, for instance, is used in a lot of industrial yeah, ways. Exactly. Uh, and in fact, one of the big concerns, and I can't tell you exactly why this has never happened, except that there are constant efforts to detect these kinds of radioactive uh, materials. Um, Isn't it true that nine tenths of all of the um, uh, all of the freight that comes in at our ports remains Unexamined. Unexamined, although although there is a lot of spot examination. The NYPD itself does some examination. It has its own scuba teams out there mm -hmm. under the water yeah. in certain circumstances. But sure, the volume that's coming through uh, is beyond anyone's ability to check. But again, that's a little bit misleading because it's putting, it's putting the whole emphasis on the idea of detecting the materials. It's precisely because that's so difficult that you need the human intelligence to penetrate the organization. Detecting the humans rather than the stuff You, you detect the use. humans and you get inside the human yeah. groups before uh -huh. they can do something like that. A good point. That's what you need to do. A very good point. 
Um, but the problem, the problem with uh, with homegrown terrorists and with terrorists like Madrid and and the ones in uh, in London, is that they're very small groups and they're not looking to have some big technological breakthrough. Mm -hmm. They just need a few explosives, which are not that hard to get. And if they set themselves off or set off the explosives, in Madrid they were not suicide bombers, they can have a huge effect. The main figures of <coughs> in your book are Ray Kelly, David Cohen, also a fellow named Michael Sheehan. Yeah. Uh, what is their own expectation about what will happen on their watch or beyond their watch? Their expectation is that if they work hard enough and relentlessly enough, they can keep any major terrorist attack from happening mm -hmm. in New York City. In fact, even uh, five years ago, that somebody in Washington used the word inevitable because this has been a yes. repeated theme mm -hmm. in Washington, and uh, Kelly publicly took issue with it. He said, there's always a risk, but it is not inevitable. We're going to the phone shortly. It's time to invite telephone calls, and for that matter, email 5917200, the number. The lines are open, and uh, any questions you want to raise, uh, feel free and get in there quickly to pose your question, or for that matter, your comment. Two, Christopher Dickey, author of the book, Securing the City. 312, the area code, then 5917200. If you'd rather reach us via email, and particularly if you're an internet listener far away, um, and want to come in via email. The email address is, again, as ever, extension 720, as one word, extension 720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Um, what do you know? You, what I did when I got your book, the first thing I did is go to the index, and I went to the letter C, and I looked up <laughs> Chicago. There's only one mention of Chicago in your book. What do you hear? from your intelligence friends at NYPD or elsewhere about uh, the degree to which Chicago has been targeted and whether, and for that matter, what do you know about what we've done in terms of counter-terrorist operation? Well, I think uh, I focused on New York because it's a very special oh, case. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and I think that when, you, when terrorists have looked at Chicago, they tend to look uh, look at the Sears Tower. They look at iconic buildings. Yeah. They like that because they think that will get them a lot of attention. But nothing gets them as much attention as New York because it is the media center, the financial center, and the center of iconic buildings that it, mm -hmm. that it is, and because the population is so incredibly dense. So Chicago is listed by the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security as what they call a Tier 1 city in terms of risk. Other Tier 1 cities are New York and Washington area, obviously, also uh, San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles, and Houston, uh, and Chicago. And I think that it has to be concerned about the risk. But Chicago, as far as I can tell, mainly works through the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force that's set up. There are several of these around the country, about 100 of them now around the country. And that's the more conventional way to share intelligence with the federal government. Then others of these Tier 1 cities have not picked up and used the NYPD operation as a model. No, and they can't because they don't begin to have the resources either. Remember that the New York NYPD has 35,000 or now 32,000 cops uh, and 17,000 uh, 17, civilians working for it and a $4 billion budget. So no city has the kinds of resources that the NYPD has to bring to bear mm -hmm. on these kinds of things. And in fact, a lot of cities, Chicago included, Atlanta, where I just was, would be another one, Los Angeles, uh, have a multiplicity of police forces. 
county police forces, sure. local city police forces, uh, and all that has to be coordinated in a way that uh, New York doesn't have to uh, have to deal with. So they rely much more on the federal government to do this work. I learned from your book that the NYPD not only has uh, all the people working on counterterrorism in New York and around New York, but also they're spread out around. Uh, well, around many, the world, many areas around the world. Around the world, there yeah. I think they are in eleven different cities. Uh, the, uh, NYPD detectives have been stationed to work actually in the offices of the mm -hmm. local counterterror police. So, for instance, there is an NYPD detective in Scotland Yard. There is an NYPD detective in the intelligence division of the French National Police. Also in Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. uh, also in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and in just one per place, surely more. Often than that. it's no, no. It's often just one guy really? because the function is not to be out there doing it's all liaison, the work. Basically. It's it's liaison, yeah. but it's liaison at the cop level. It's liaison yeah. cops talking to cops yeah. and about very nitty gritty what David Cohen likes to call granular details. Uh -huh. We will get down to our own version of the nitty gritty in response to the calls from our listeners. Five nine one seven two double zero. The lines are open. I see one line available, in fact. If, however, you hit the busy signal and don't get through, the right strategy is to call again after we've said goodnight to a prior caller. And if you want to reach us via email, that's infinitely available, virtually infinite, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, and the email address, extension720 at tribune.com. On to your calls and your emails directly after these words. And directly on to your calls uh, to and for Christopher Dickey. The book that we've been drawing from, though we've hardly done full justice to its rich detail, the fascinating stories, the fascinating information that it conveys, uh, that book, Securing the City Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD, is published by Simon & Schuster. And we go to the first caller, this being uh, David in Newton, Iowa. Good evening, sir. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, what element does just the general public's awareness of what's going on and, and other factors that can't be tied to either government programs or police have an effect upon this. It seems to me, uh, while the Bush administration should get its due, and the, of course the NYPD, but what about the general public? What, what role are we playing in uh, keeping the pressure on the terrorists? I think it's extremely important that the public be aware but not paranoid. Uh, in the in the um, in the subways, for instance, in New York, there are signs all over that say, "If you see something, say something," and that's really the key to what the public should be doing. Uh, it should be aware. It should notice things that are unusual in its own communities. And this is actually one of the things that's that's very important, I think, over the long run in fighting against terrorism inside the United States, is to have a public aware and a police force, police forces, that work closely with the public in all kinds of communities, and including in especially immigrant communities, so that they can detect things that are abnormal groups that may start uh, evolving toward radical and violent jihad. Uh, and, and in fact, you see that that's been very effective, that outreach in, uh, in New York City. What about peer pressure? I'm not sure I understand what you mean. By well, in other words, uh, the temptation to, I mean, there are so many thousands of places in our country besides the cities 
that 200 people gather together, high school football games, elementary schools. Uh, the, the targets really are unlimited. Well, but that's but right. That's be... right. But if you sit around and you think up the targets, it, it is the path to madness because everything is possible. But one of the things that interested me about studying the NYPD particularly is it, it had to go beyond what's possible and look very much at what's likely. What are the scenarios that have happened before? This is one of the reasons that they have, we were just talking about people around the world, they have people around the world to look at actual terrorist attacks to see what precisely is done and how and with what targets. And when you do that, uh, it starts to put the, the threat in perspective. If you just sit and think about what terrorists might do, then it's hard to even persuade yourself to walk outside. Sir, we thank you for the call. Interesting uh, first uh, round. And we go quickly to another on 5917200 to Rich in Ingleside. Good evening. Cool. Hey, hey Mel, thanks for taking the call. Our pleasure, sir. Uh, um, okay, here's my question. What uh, improvements in electronic, uh, uh, I guess you would say electronic countermeasures or listening to or watch emails or listening to telephone calls, something on that order, what improvements have been made for us uh, to look for the bad guys on that human effort uh, since 9-11? Well, I think this is not at the level of the NYPD, but the level of the N NSA. You've had a huge growth in their ability to monitor uh, particularly um, fiber optic cables, uh, so they are able to tap into the flood of communication. But you know, with the this, world. in the beginning of this book, you uh, uh, present a, a helicopter, which sounds like a well, helicopter. Well, I mean, the, the specific the question future. was about was about tapping, but yeah. in fact, there are huge te technology. That's an incredible. But, but when but when we get into technology, for instance, the NYPD has an un, uh, more than one unmarked helicopter flying above the city with an enormous lens on it with heat detectors that can that can actually see not only where people are but where they've been that can look in windows if it wants that the, in fact at the begin, beginning of securing the city i'm in one of those choppers and i give my address in new york city to the guy who's operating the joysticks on the three screens the the controls it's like a you know like a nintendo control and uh the next thing i know <clears throat> we're miles away and the camera turns around and goes right in on my apartment building and stays locked on it as we move the helicopter over the borough. You say at a magnification of about a thousand. Of about a thousand, <clears throat> of about a thousand, and digitally can be can be almost doubled. So you can really look look right in on people if you want to do it. Of course, you say to them, "Are you looking in windows?" And they say, "Oh no, 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 we don't look in windows." <laughs> Incredible. But but are you monitoring communications? And I think that's I, yeah, that, that was very that key. was why I responded about the NSA. Sure. Yes, there is monitoring of communications. Uh, but again, this is one of those issues where the NYPD is extremely aggressive. There was a huge and what became a very public fight between the NYPD and the FBI just last summer because they wanted to monitor communications and get FISA warrants to do it. But the real monitoring of communications it comes from the NSA, and basically it's tapped into all communications if it wants to be. Sure, we thank you for the call. Let me read you an interesting and uh, necessary email, actually. Uh, you mentioned that through the use of waterboarding, an element of a terrorist plot was foiled. Yet the Obama administration has indicated that it is definitely against the use of any type of such activity, no matter what the adverse consequences. In fact, there are members of the administration that want to see some of Bush's cohorts tried for, quote, war crimes as a result of the use of waterboarding. Would you kindly comment? 
Well, nobody's going to be tried for war, uh, war crimes because of the results, the use of waterboarding. Uh, and I think that actually it's very interesting in terms of the early days of uh, the effort to stop al-Qaeda after 9-11. Because at that point, uh, the United States really did not have very good intelligence about al-Qaeda. It had some, but not the kind of stuff that you can use, not the kind of granular stuff you need when you're conducting an interrogation. Uh, and they were desperate for that bottom line information. And that's why when the first big guy or first guy they thought was a big guy that they got, Abu Zubaydah, uh, very quickly uh, was put under pretty extreme stress and, and was the first to be waterboarded as far as we know. By the time they got Khalid Sheikh Mohammed a year later, they had a lot of information from lots of different sources. They knew these operations very well and they had lots of detail. And they also, also and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was also incredibly talkative. He even talked to reporters. He, and since then, he's claimed to have done just about everything except crucify Jesus Christ. He's, he, he's, he's not hard to make talk. When they waterboard uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, there are people I know in the CIA who think they did that mainly because they just wanted to take revenge on it. So it's a, it's a very mixed bag, and, and I think there is probably no reason to use those kinds of methods anymore because they're, they're not nearly as productive as an interrogation where you have a good baseline of information to begin with and where you have people who speak the language. Remember, in those early days, the CIA and FBI were working through translators. How are you going to get the kind of complicity you need with an interrogation subject if you don't even speak his language? And you have to go through a third party. Well, how do you break through his own convictions, his own commitment, his own ideology, his own religious faith? Uh, a lot of these guys are proud of what they do. They want to brag. They want to brag. Uh -huh. They want to brag, especially these guys, especially you, someone like Khalid. But that's, that's with regard to achievements in the past. But what about their, uh, their uh, betraying plans for the future? How do you get them to do that? Well, waterboarding is not necessarily going to make them do it because you don't know what their plans are for the future no. and they can tell you anything they want. You have to get them, you have to convince them that they need to convince you of something, of how great they are, uh -huh. how smart they are. Or, in some cases, they can see the light and decide that they were wrong with what they did and they can repent and talk to you as, the, the, for instance, the Red Brigades did in the old days in mm -hmm. Italy in some cases. Uh, and as, as many members of al-Qaeda have done in Saudi Arabia and in Egypt, some of them tortured, a lot of them not. Hmm. A lot of them not. Back to the phones, or rather, no, to the newsroom for a quick update on what's been happening, and then back to the phones and to the email. For the phones, 5917200, of course, 312, the area code, then 5917200. For email, extension 720 at tribune.com. And we return to Christopher Dickey, drawing from the book Securing the City Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD. And we go to Tony in Atlanta. Good evening. Good evening, Dr. Rosenberg. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure, sir. I'm a little bit uh, curious as to why uh, the U.S. is so behind the curve uh, relative to intelligence. And what I want to bring up is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the country of Israel, for many, many years with its Mossad, I mean, they have this uh, no, uh, take-no-prisoners approach to intelligence or, you know, incarcerating people, you know, whatever it takes kind of a sort of attitude. 
why why has it taken us so long since 9-11 to uh, adopt that approach? Israel's in a very different position than the United States. <clears throat> a lot of what it's doing uh, in its take-no-prisoners approach or is actually to take lots of prisoners uh, in the occupied territories uh, and to work mm -hmm. the situation of occupation in a way that's very, very different, not so much the Mossad but the Shin Bet. Uh, which is really the vital uh, organ where the internal security of Israel and counterterrorism is concerned. When you're talking about international operations, yes, the Mossad has been very aggressive and, among other things, has carried out a long-standing policy of assassinating people uh, who may be dangerous to Israel and to its people. Uh, the United States doesn't carry out assassinations or hasn't until very recently had a program uh, that involved that kind of activity. Uh, now with our predator drones, uh, we do that kind of thing, uh, but Israel does the, the same kind of thing in, in, in effect that Israel is doing in the occupied territories, but over a wider ranging area, whether in Yemen or in uh, the mountains of Pakistan and Afghanistan. But I think it's mainly that you've got a, just a different, a different dynamic. The United States is facing multiple threats from multiple sources, and Israel is tending to face specific threats from specific sources that are very close to home. Well, I find it very fascinating that, uh, you know, Israel, as, uh, you know, one of our international neighbors and someone that uh, we here in the U.S., uh, you know, uh, fund very liberally, um, they're allowed to, you know. What do you mean allowed? A, they're a sovereign country. Well, we, we fund them. We're willing to go ahead and, uh, you know, let them, uh, well, not just us in the U.S., but, you know, as an entire, you know, world, we're, we're allowing them to go and do these things. My question is, you know, why is it that uh, we as United States uh, citizens, why are we not allowed to, you know, like, go after the dictators that are, you know, bringing down, you know, countries, uh, you know, left and right? We support a lot of those people. We support a lot of dictators around the world. I mean, statecraft is a very complicated business and you can't just go after people uh, unless they become a particular threat to you. The one case in which we did that, Saddam Hussein, uh, has led to a situation where we've occupied a country now for many years at a cost of $2.5 billion a week, 4,000 dead Americans, tens of thousands, probably more than 100,000 dead Iraqis, uh, and we're only now beginning to see something that might be construed as a, remo as a remotely favorable situation there, and always at the risk that it will fall into the hands of Iran. Our thanks to the caller from Atlanta, and some lines available now, if you've been trying to reach us, certainly make another quick try on 591-7200-312, the area code, and let's go to, um, to Bob in Naperville. Good evening. Good evening. I'm curious about the domestic terrorist militia types. Have they uh, been cracked or in infiltrated, or is it just a matter of them not having the resources? Both. Uh, it's not so much by the NYPD, uh, although it's certainly aware of, of uh, these domestic far-right groups. Uh, but mainly they don't, by the They're FBI. not particularly uh, present in New York life, I should say. No, they're not. I mean, they're, but, uh, yeah. but, but, but they are, of course, a concern, because New York is always a symbol yeah. uh, that can be fixed on. Uh, but no, the the main issue with them tends to be out in more rural in the northwest, particularly the northwest, yeah. particularly. And the FBI and uh, ATF and these organizations are in kind of constant uh, running confrontation with some of these groups. 
Uh, actually, if you look at the FBI's own records of uh, terrorist acts and failed terrorist acts in the United States, uh, the most recent uh, only goes up to, I think, 2005, 2006. The majority of them are animal rights activists and these militia-type groups. Thank you very much. We thank you, sir. Here's a curious email, but I can understand it and empathize with it. This is from a, a woman uh, by name who says, I was horrified that you played a tape of people being killed. That's that Madrid thing. Mm. Are you out of your mind? Why would anyone want to hear that? I assume you did, which means you are insensitive and need to check into what are normal human emotions. Um, golly, I don't know what to say to that. I think one needs to confront the horror that's out there. Oh, I think absolutely we do. Uh, I, You know, there's always a debate in the press about how much we should show about war yeah. and about, and terrorism is part of the act of war. Uh, and how do you how do you convey to people the horror without may, simply making them turn away? But you know, when you go back to 9/11, I can certainly understand uh, the feelings of uh, this uh, listener and her chiding me for this. Um, when you go back to 9/11 and one watched compulsively the television coverage and the mm. the playing and the replaying and the replaying, the thing I could not abide, and I would have responded to it the way this caller just responded to me, were, were the scenes. Of people jumping yeah. out of the towers from the top and hurtling to their death. And those were sh those did not get a lot of play. The pe you did see some. After a while, they stopped running that. Yeah, because people, they were just too horrible. Yeah. And I think they were horrible not because they were graphic, but because they touched on some kind of nightmare sense exactly. that we all have. They, they were beyond horrible. We go back to the phones, 591-7200 and to... Oliver in Macomb. Good evening. Hello, are you there? Good Good evening. Yes, sir. I've heard uh, more details about effective intelligence and intelligence generally on this program the last hour or so than I've uh, read over the last couple of years probably. And and that was uh, uh, that great Chicago and Seymour Hersh's stories in The New Yorker and some others in The New Yorker. My question is... Um, would, would not the government be better advised to be more open about uh, revealing this type of information <clears throat> and letting people uh, make informed decisions uh, about the search for terror, terrorists and combating it than to regarding uh, than to treating everything as a state secret. And um, your previous caller, uh, question about Israel reminded me too. Um, how long will it take before the United States would adopt the face-to-face -face interrogation at airports, which uh, the Israelis, <clears throat> the Israeli airlines have done uh, for a long time, and I think is probably effective rather than the charade that just irritates everyone? Well, on the first question, I think that uh, information is shared um, selectively. You're, I don't think it's all hidden, but I think it is shared selectively and sometimes with purpose. As I think we mentioned earlier, you sometimes bring people to trial not because you think they're the worst people, but because you can use it as an illustration of the things you can do in intelligence work. Um, but by and large, you can't share uh, 
a lot of information that you get intelligence simply because you'll be giving away your sources. People will triangulate and figure out who you're talking to or how you're getting the information, and particularly when you're dealing with human intelligence. Uh, you can't lose those sources. They're too hard to cultivate over time. In terms of face-to-face -face, uh, questioning at airports, Look, it's very hard to train people to do that well and effectively and reliably. In Israel, you're essentially talking about one airport. Maybe you can add a lot to that, but basically you're talking about one airport at Lod Ben-Gurion Airport. Uh, in the United States, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of airports. Uh, so just logistically and in terms of training, that would be an extremely, extremely difficult thing to do. And of course, the other thing is Israel has <coughs> conscription. A lot of the people who are doing that, in fact, as far, in my experience, all of the people who are doing that uh, at the airports are young people serving in, serving their military as part of their national service, which is compulsory in Israel. Our thanks to the caller. How do they handle these things in England? England has a, a larger, in proportion, uh, Islamic population with more evidence of uh, considerable uh, Anglophobia, so to speak. And, right, and a lot of isolated communities, a lot of communities that have drawn in on themselves. How do their counterterrorism operations, particularly as run by the police, compare to what's going on in New York? Uh, well, in fact, I think they've learned a lot from the people in New York. Uh, I think in the early days, certainly New York was learning from them, but yeah. later on, I think the, there's a sort of constant re-examination that's been going on since 2005, because up until then, there was a co conventional wisdom, including in the security establishment, was there's no problem here. You know, we have nice Muslims here. They may be angry at other countries. They may even be terrorists in other countries, but they're not going to act here in England. And then all of a sudden, you had British citizens, British-born citizens of Pakistani descent, in the first case, in 7-7, uh, who blow up the subways. So they thought, we must be missing something. And they started to address these communities in very different ways and understand, among other things, that the isolation of the communities, the idea that you could basically have communities that were dominated by an imam uh, and by a culture of separation uh, was not a healthy thing. And they've got all kinds of policies now to try and avoid that. We uh, pause the last round of commercials, then right back to the phones, 591-7200, and to the email, extension 720, at tribune.com. And directly back to Christopher Dickey. Uh, have you caught on yet that the title of his book is Securing the City Inside America's Best Counter-Terror Force, the NYPD? It is indeed riveting reading and very important reading, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. 591-7200 is the number as we go to... Edward here in Chicago. Good evening, sir. Yes, good evening. Uh, one of the things that has bothered me for a long time is this claim by Bush that uh, there hasn't been a terrorist attack in the United States, you know, since the World Trade Center in 2001. Well, you could have said that about Bill Clinton, too. You know, other than that first attempt by Ramsey Yusuf in 1993, there really wasn't one other than Timothy McVeigh, who was a homegrown terrorist. And uh, Bill Clinton was able to do this without starting two Middle Eastern wars. And what I really think is uh, what we had on 9-11 was a complete failure of all our intelligence and our airport security. And George Bush is trying to take credit for keeping terrorism out of our country when he failed on 9-11 itself because of the security lapse. And it's nothing he's done since then that's made us any safer other than to enforce the security he should have been supporting on 9-11. Well, I think we can give him more credit than that. Uh, Why? 
Well, I think if you look at what happened, first of all, there was a general failure dating back well into the Clinton administration to take bin Laden seriously as someone who, had, who could deliver the kind of attack that he delivered on 9-11, or that well, his people delivered on 9-11. You know, all of us who were interested in bin Laden through the 1990s were, were practically screaming by the middle of the decade that there was this huge danger out there. And I, I, I'm not going to tell you that we thought they were going to attack the World Trade Center and bring it down. I think Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney knew they were. No, I, I don't think so. Is it nothing to try to no, stop no, 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 I don't think so. I think if you look, for instance, at the cable, uh, I mean, at the, the uh, President's Daily Briefing, yes. if you look at the text of that, and rather than the reports on it, you see it really is pretty vague. You can see why Bush looked at it and went, you know, uh, you guys are just covering your asses here. Can uh, you tell me, sir, why the purpose, the stated purpose of the 9-11 Commission was not to investigate 9-11 itself, but as they said, to prevent future 9-11. No, because there were a lot of failings, but you, you're, you're, <laughs> you're giving us but you're giving us both arguments. On the one hand, they're failings. On the other hand, they, they intended to let this happen. I, I, there certainly were failings. There were a lot of failings. That's one reason that in securing the city, I'm writing about the NYPD uh, taking it on itself to address a lot of these problems. Um, interesting email in front of me. Let me read it to you quickly. Does your guest believe that there is, quote, moderate Islam, and is it possible to get Muslims in any significant number to aid in the reduction of terror? It seems to me most Muslim governments, and even those Muslims who live in the West, play a double game, telling Western leaders what they want to hear while supporting the cause of Islamic supremacists. No, I mean, please, please. Yes, there's, there's moderate Islam. Most Islam is moderate Islam, very moderate, and especially in the United States where Muslim immigrants in the United States are very much like every other group of immigrants that have ever come to the United States. They seem it in the first generation to be very apart from the general culture, and through the generations they become more and more part of the melting pot. Are they less so in, say, in France or in England? Absolutely, they're less so in France Why? and in England. Because they came under different circumstances. The, the immigrants here, Muslim immigrants here, are a self-selecting group of people who come here not just for jobs but to build a future mm -hmm. because they believe in the idea of America in one way or another. You can't, actually, you can't believe how, how much people are in love with the idea of America in the Muslim world, in France, not with government policies. Not in France, in not France, in Germany, not in England. In, in all those places, people came to work in factories as low-level laborers. The banlieue of Paris. Sure. The suburbs of Paris were those great buildings where you have largely Islamic populations right. housed. Uh, rather remind you of Detroit. Because in both places, they want to burn it down, and they do. Well, in the sense, they, if they remind you of Detroit, it's partly because the same kind of thing happened. You had yeah. a large immigration of people uh, to get jobs in factories, and then the factories closed, and the people stayed. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't have jobs, they don't have futures, and they have a hell of a lot of frustration. That's not because they're Muslims. That's because they've just been left out in the, in the great turning of events. But Islamicist rage against the West and against Christendom uh, does flourish in those same of course they do. Lots of radical ideas flourish in that kind of environment, yeah. and I'm not trying to downplay it. But there's another, there's another thing that goes on in, in this whole debate, and it's not limited to, to Muslims. The whole question of occupation is one that people mm -hmm. resent, and that is a hugely loaded idea, especially in any society that's been under colonial occupation. 
This is why, for instance, you know, why on earth would Evo Morales in Bolivia suddenly get worked up about Gaza? Well, maybe he's a political opportunist, maybe he's a born anti-Semite, but maybe, maybe what he's really doing is capitalizing on the idea that the Bolivians hate the idea of occupation. And once it's couched in that kind, once the question is couched in that framework, uh, you can see that you, there's a lot of widespread support in the third world for all kinds of radical causes that fight occupation. Well, back to the phones in the few minutes remaining, and we go to Jim in Skokie. Good evening. Hey, how you doing, gentlemen? Fine, sir. Go ahead, please. Yeah, you know, I got a question. You know, I've been reading, you know, part of our concern with Pakistan, you know, is their control over their nuclear weapons, you know, with the Taliban and the terrorists, you know, over there and taking over the country. Or let's say perhaps, you know, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, whoever, you know, you know, makes it a dirty nuclear bomb and war attacks. How do you respond to, you know, such a um, awful type of attack, you know, when there's no state organization to respond to? Well, in the case of Pakistan, there would be some sort of state organization to respond to. No, no but the Taliban still, you know, well, the, the Taliban, that, that certainly is a nightmare scenario, but we're a long way from that. The question is, what do we do if somebody manages to pull off a radiological attack? Say, right. for instance, if you had a Timothy McVeigh fi figure who, in addition to building a big bomb, managed to get a little bit of cesium to put in it and, and set it off, and then we, all of Oklahoma City would suddenly be setting off Geiger counters. Uh, who do you attack? Who do you go after? Uh, that's always a big question. Sometimes in Israel, for instance, when there are attacks and they couldn't pin the blame on anybody specific, they would attack people who were a general threat to them because psychologically people need to strike back. But in terms of the specific response um, it, it, for a radiological attack, unless it can be traced very quickly, it's very hard to know who you would strike back at, which is why the best policy is to keep working on human intelligence and keep penetrating the organizations, not only so you can find out what happened after the fact, but you can find out before the fact. And we will go to another caller, uh, and this is Fred in Maryville. Good evening, you're on the air. Good evening, gentlemen. I wanted to ask the author in his research on the organization in New York as to um, what are they doing as far as uh, trying to keep a delicate balance between trying to uh, secure uh, New York from attacks but yet um, maintaining uh, private citizens' uh, privacy and uh, civil liberties? Well, it's, that's a constant balancing act, uh, and it's one that they've, NYPD has sometimes uh, fallen down on the wrong side of the line on. I think the most difficulties they've had are not, not actually about dealing with the Muslim communities or that threat at all. They were uh, during the 2004 Republican Convention when they decided to send out intelligence officers to penetrate organizations all over the United States, uh, political organizations, you might say, a little bit like the old COINTELPRO operations uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and during the demonstrations themselves, they arrested about 1,300 people against whom they really didn't have any charges. They just suspected them or people among them of being potential uh, serious troublemakers. And they kept them locked up in a bus depot for two days, saying that they were processing them, but the processing was slow. This was really pushing the edge of 
the edge of uh, not only proprietary but constitutional constitutional issues and propriety, not proprietary. Uh, and as and the the lawsuits have gone on and on about that. Uh, but generally speaking, I think they they have batteries of lawyers to keep them informed on these issues, uh, and they consult with them all the time. But they are always pushing the edge of the envelope. And I, in the book, I say, uh, eventually I came to where I trusted Ray Kelly, the commissioner, and David Cohen, the head of the intelligence division, and Richard Falconrath now in counterterrorism. But if it weren't them, I'm not sure I'd trust them. I think if Bernie Carrick had this power, where would we be? He almost became the head of Homeland Security, didn't he? Think of that. That was before he was indicted. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I've only got a minute left. Uh, shouldn't pull this on you. But you remember, somebody used the Churchillian praise about a long twilight struggle, looking forward to a culture clash that would run the century. What do you, what do you think is in prospect over the long haul? Uh, I think if we're smart about this, uh, we'll conduct the war against terrorists uh, as... Uh, something that's based on a combination of good intelligence gathering and effective law enforcement and not make it a matter for armies deploying around the world, except in very, very special circumstances and then in very limited ways. But how long will it go on? How long will people feel angry? Forever. 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 But I think to, to, to couch it as something like the Cold War, that sort of scale, mm. that kind of danger, no. Absolutely not. I don't know if our readers are old enough to remember, but we were looking at the, the possible end of the world to be during sure. the Cold War. Kids were trying to get under the desks. Duck and cover. Just before the world blew up. Our guest tonight has been Christopher Dickey, and a most interesting guest indeed. Securing the city inside America's best uh, counter-terror force, the NYPD, is the book that we've been drawing from. Uh, that's published by Simon & Schuster. We'll be back again tomorrow night. Our guest being Adam Gopnik, one of the leading writers at the New Yorker magazine, who's done a fascinating book titled Angels, Angels and Ages. What it's really about is Lincoln and, of all people, Charles Darwin, who were born uh, virtually at the same moment, uh, 200 years ago. That's tomorrow night. Um, and until then, our thanks to our guest again, Christopher Dickey. Thanks to all for listening. And a most cordial good night.